We start every recording appreciating well, Riverside. It's true. Countdown. Every time we hit record, we're like, it's, oh, this is good. It's so good. We like we like good software. Yeah. Hey, Gina. How's it going? It's going great. How are you? Good, good, good. Hanging out in the old podcast studio here at 101 Fifth Avenue in New York City. Big podcast mics in front of our mouths. Big giant podcast mics that are hopefully recording right now. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. (laughs) I'm excited about our episode today. We have a... We have a special guest joining us. A very special guest. This is a world-class product manager who I got introduced to a few years ago and have been very impressed with and stayed in touch with. And she has a very interesting career in streaming services that we can talk about. So uh, let us introduce Kate Radway to the podcast. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, of course. So we have a ton to cover. But before we do so, I would love it if you could just give kind of a brief overview of of your career and what you've been doing and where you are now um, so that we can figure out where to dive in. Yeah, absolutely. I never know really where to start with these sort of career questions, right? You can go back pretty far. I think (laughs) relevancy-wise, I'll start with, I've always been a a person who was really interested in media, journalism. And so after after getting a master's, I wanted to kind of go into sports journalism and ended up at ESPN doing TV production. A little different than what I was expecting since I went and got a master's in magazine writing and then went to a format where you're making things that are 30 seconds long. But it was, it was a pretty fascinating place to work. At ESPN, I did, I produced highlights on SportsCenter, got familiar with basically social media and new technologies that were coming in. And actually, the reason I even got into product is because at ESPN, we were starting to do live social voting. So it was 2009, 2010, Twitter is sort of becoming a thing and people are trying to figure out how to get the, you know, the voice of the watcher into the TV broadcasts. And so There were a couple different companies that were coming up at the time. Mass Relevance was one. And I started using their tools to allow people to do live social voting on TV to say whether or not they agreed with the hosts on television. Pretty interesting, but it opened up the world of social data to me. And so what we started to see is that there was actually this community that you could hear in real time through tweets. Well, you don't hear tweets, but you can you can read them. <laughs> and you could get a sense for what people were responding to well, what people didn't like, what they wanted the hosts to talk about. And so to me, that was enlightening. It was data, right? And I don't think I'd ever really thought about getting actual data you could use for TV production. Like that just hadn't been a thought in my mind. And so I became amazed at the pulse of the watcher. And so Long story short, pitched myself to the company that was mass relevance, became spread fast, said that I would love to get into this TV social data world. I thought I could help people understand, companies understand the value of having this real social pulse in, in real time on TV. They they agreed that they thought I could make an impact, and so they hired me. And that got me into the world of software, which I had never in my life thought about getting into. And from there, it just sort of became an obsession of me being a a user of the product on the TV side and just kind of constantly sending the PMs notes. The thing I'm sure PMs and myself hate today, right? Is the people just like, I had one, one more idea for you. Like, have you ever thought about this? And the answer is always yes, but we can't do it for X, Y, Z resources, priorities, whatever it is. I was, I was one of those people annoying the PMs at this new job. 
And over time, I just got more familiar with the process and eventually got recruited in to take over the product I had used at ESPN, which was pretty cool. So that's that's the short story of how I got into product. Um, when you joined Spreadfast, was your title product manager? I or had was many it something different else? titles. I came in as a market director, which was a sort of a salesy role of trying to going into, I was in LA at the time, going into Fox Studios, Sony, having meetings to say, this is how you can use social data to inform your TV broadcasts or to ensure your show, your show development. So I did that for a while, which was pretty compelling. Then I had a title called Creative Architect, which was about trying to, it was essentially someone trying to think about how to create a moment around social TV and how could we use these visual displays of like, you know, you've, you watch the Super Bowl and they put the tweet on the screen from J-Lo about whatever play is out there. It was sort of that, that type of role, which is how do we take what's happening on social and, and make more of a real world experience with it. That was sort of a short-lived career at that company. And then I moved into product management. It's so fascinating to me how people end up thinking in a product-centric way, but they come from these, you know, experience design type roles that are not PM by name, but share so many aspects of what a good product manager is going to be thinking about. You were doing, you know, if you want to think of it this way, maybe it's a stretch, but like user experience design, when you were thinking about what is the watcher seeing on the TV and what is the person who's, you know, controlling the content management system, what, how are they figuring out what's going to ultimately end up on those screens? You know, you were doing product even before you were called a product manager. It's interesting. It's like a lot of PMs that we talk to have this kind of, you know, I was sort of doing product before I ever knew that was a title. So it's, it's just interesting. I think it, for me, it comes down to sort of problem solving or wanting to solve a problem, seeing something that could be solved and then letting your brain think about, well, what would need to be true for that to be fixed? So exactly, that's always kind of been my default. I think it can be annoying at times for people who, let's say, just want to vent and all you want to do is solve their problems. So it doesn't always serve me. (laughs) So take us on, you made a left turn and you you wound up in streaming services. Tell us that journey. Yeah. So um, I had gotten out of media to go work at the startup that was doing the social analytics, social data. And over time, I got less connected to the media companies that I was trying to pitch for and more involved in marketing because it was a lot of companies like a Whole Foods or Skechers or big brands that were using social to understand what people were saying. I wasn't so interested in social for the use of, of brand products as much as I was interested in social in the use of media. And so I did sort of get to a point where I just really mixed TV, content creation, content consumption, everything that kind of comes with the media world and, and wanted to get back into that. And so over time, that sort of led me to really, and I, I really enjoyed working ESPN at the time that I worked there. It was part of the Disney Corporation. I really enjoyed my time at Disney at ESPN. And so I was trying to get back into Disney and streaming and found a fit with Disney Plus as they were sort of, it was it was about a year after they launched is when I made the move over to Disney Plus in a, uh, a senior product manager role. Tell us what it is like to ship software in an environment like Disney. Because I have to imagine it is an entirely different world unto itself when compared to most people who are pushing products out into the world. It's very, very different, I think, depending on where you are, right? Everyone says product is a, a discipline that it's very different from company to company. And I've had you know, the experience of working at a, a 500-person company, sort of an 80-person company in product specifically, and then at Disney, which was a very large product organization with a lot of different teams. 
And it was tough. I mean, it is it is a matrix organization with a lot of teams. And, you know, I think one of the challenges that they that they have had and are trying to figure out, and I think all streamers sort of have is there's the mix between the front end UI, the experience of the streaming service, there's the back end pieces, the back end technologies that go into that. There's there's personalization, there's a, a content management system, there's all these different things that have to come together to really sing for your product. And all of those are distinct work streams with their own backlogs. And then you layer on top the devices, like the TV devices, the mobile devices, the the web, and and there's just this massive like intersection of places for things to get lost and slowed down. It was a struggle on a day to day to really figure out how was the best way to move your piece forward because that's not even taking into account then the business yeah. priorities, right? And like, what does the business actually want to accomplish versus what does the PM see as opportunities at a more you know ground level? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It sounds challenging to just because there's so many variables, you know, to line everything up. Were there techniques that you found worked? You know, were there ways that you could sort of carve out a piece of it or uh, a smaller set of functionality that you feel like, okay, this is a, a manageable chunk that I can bite off and figure out how to ultimately get to production and, and put it in front of people? Yeah. I mean, I, I listen to a lot of product podcasts. I, I read a lot. I think the thing that rings the most true in my experience is the bridge building and relationship building and socializing that you can do of the different areas that you're invested in, right? So there were some problems in the space that I was in was was really focused on this sort of idea of familiar content, content that you've engaged with on the platform, right? So streaming is basically a mix of things that you have yet to discover or have discovered and things that you're currently watching, have told us you want to watch, or given some sort of signal on. And I was really focused on the stuff that you had either started consuming, told us you wanted to consume, or or had previously watched. And those pain points around trying to make that experience much better is, is where I was really focused. So one of them was around making the continue watching experience better. So, you know, you started watching a show, you leave it to go do whatever it is. For me, that's usually attending to my kids and coming back later and then picking up a show. Same. And it was, yeah, I mean, it's a struggle for all of us, right? Most of us. <laughs> and there was this one thing, which was around, you know, basically sometimes we would show content that you thought you'd finished, but we didn't recognize that you'd finished because you didn't hit a certain, a certain marker. And so uh, we would, yes, credits. exactly. <laughs> Brings you back to the credits. Yep. Yeah. And so this was a challenge that, you know, there's a lot of upstream. How do you mark content? When do you mark it? When is the actual finish time? When do we want to push you into that next piece of content? When should that come in? All of these different variables. And so it was around how do you, one, start to identify all the dependencies? Because there's a ton of different dependencies in this world. How do you identify all the dependencies, all of the things you got, you have to change to get that shipped? And then you have to go meet with all of those different people to understand their backlog, to have them see the value in what you're doing, to present data on the size of the problem. And that was what I did. It was a lot of boots on the ground, a lot of just trying to to go meet with the right people and get them to see the the vision where we could go, what we could do, and then also understanding how it could fit into their larger roadmap. Because of course, you know, the one one of the challenges that I think of a product that's really successful is that the things that are pebbles in a shoe don't always get fixed. It's a little bit of, you know, we're still walking. It's fine. Like I can put up with this pebble and over time it becomes really frustrating, but there's not at like a given point. It's not the thing that the business is really focused on, on getting done and finished and out of the way. 
This is the hard, invisible work that we don't talk about a whole lot. But the, the truth is, it feels very obvious to a user like, oh, hey, we need to fix this hole. Don't bring me back to the end, the very end of this piece of content. I've, I finished watching the show. But the getting the data, doing the presentations, marching around the org, selling it up, you know, fitting it into the business strategy, making the case that a great user experience is critical to the bit. Like, this is the hard work. <laughs> and that's why, you know, I think, I think a lot of, you know, viewers and users are like, why can't you just... Yeah, and it's that just, there's a lot packed in that just, it's true. There's this, also this piece within product that I don't think I appreciated until now, which is you as a product manager also have to think about where can you provide the most value and is the business at a point to align with where you think you provide the most value? So Disney, right, again, such a successful product, so many millions of, of viewers around the world. For Disney, right, they're very focused on expanding and going into other markets and, and international stuff. and that's the right decision for the company. But as a product manager who's working on the core experience and the user experience, that means that you're not necessarily going to get the resources to really build the the smaller, I don't want to say innovative because you know that's sort of assuming that expanding into new markets doesn't require any innovation, which isn't true. But you don't get to tweak the user experience in new and different ways as much because they, the business, are focused on those international launches. And so part of the reason that I am no longer at Disney Plus and I am at Peacock is that Peacock is at the point in their journey of a business where it makes a lot of sense to really focus on how do we build that best experience for the consumer? How do we make sure it's a delightful, interesting experience that gets you into and helps you discover content? Because they you know, aren't the same. They don't have the same exact IP that Disney has that is so known and, and really doesn't require the same sort of discovery mechanisms that you might need. That was so good. I feel like there are uh, 15 things that I want to parcel out and put on posters and and have them around <laughs> uh, the Postlight office so that people internalize them. I want to go back to, to two things that you said. The first one, so aligning what you do as a product person or a product manager with where the business needs are, that is so key. So key. PM should have that tattooed on their forearm so that when they look down, they're like, oh, yeah, I got to make sure that we're, you know, we are aligned with the business. And you're absolutely right that sometimes you can make like counterintuitive choices because you're like, well, as a person who's obsessed with the customer experience, I want to do X or Y, but that's not really what where the business is focused right now. And how can I redirect or at least maybe bridge the gap between, you know, the, the pebbles in the shoe of the product and where the overall business is investing and looking for future growth. It is hard, but the best product managers will sort of naturally think that way and try to build those bridges and try to orient the things that they are suggesting or driving their teams towards with some kind of business outcome. In fact, that's one of the things we talk about when we talk to our clients is yeah. how are we orienting around business, business outcomes, outcomes. Yeah. for our clients. So it's such a good it's such a good insight. The other thing I want to touch on before we move past it is the importance of content strategy, which is what you were talking about before when you were talking about those markers in videos that very much inform the user experience. Like what am I going to see? How do I indicate whether or not I finished a show? It relates back to this very, you know, it's like blue collar content strategy work where someone has to go in and say, I'm going to go through, you know, video by video if necessary and make sure that 
the metadata around this content is correct. And I think it's very common for people not to understand what is content strategy or how does it, what do I really get by investing in my content? I don't I really understand why would I want to do this work? But this is actually a prime example because it if you have good underlying taxonomies and data, metadata, they drive better experiences on the front end. And it's not something that is universally understood, but it has very real impact on what product teams are able to do and what businesses are able to bring to market. So it's such a great story. And I know, you know, I can hear the subtext of frustration that you had to sort of talk to all of these different groups to line it up, but, but that's, that's the work. And then it's real that, you know, if the content's not right, the experience is not going to be right either. It's interesting too, because, you know, if you look back at the history of when we didn't have streaming services, right, there wasn't a need to necessarily know that the first frame of your credits start at X point and the last frame of your credits start at this point. But as consumption patterns and devices and the way that we interact with content changes, those things become really valuable to key off of. And the metadata piece for personalization, right, understanding what's in the content, what are the themes, you know, what are the underlying storylines, all of that obviously informs how you personalize the ways that you understand the value of a piece of content to someone. You know, this, this gets a little bit into, I often think a lot now in the work that I'm doing at Peacock, which is more focused on content discovery, the overall content discovery experience within Peacock, which is what are the ways that people discover and try new content? What are the hooks that get people in? So I'll ask both of you, if you can remember, what is the last new show? And I'll say show, but it could be a movie, show or movie you've watched. And why did you make the decision to watch it? What got you to to watch that piece of content? Often it's for me, it's recommend, I mean, it's recommendations from friends. It's, you, know, you, you hear, you hear people, we have a channel in our Slack at Postlight, uh, where people say this is really good. And I'll see other people kind of chime in when they say it's really good. Did they use, is there anything else that comes with that? Is it just, this is really good and you should watch it. Do they compare it to other things? Do they give you, you know, a storyline about it that they think you might like? I mean, we're at a particular moment right now where it's like June 2022. It's been two years of pandemic, which means that I've, I have watched a lot of streaming stuff. I've watched <laughs> a lot of stuff. I've watched a lot of shows and a lot of movies. So so the recommendation that gets through to me is the one where someone's like, and, and recently I'm at a family party, my brother's like, you got to watch the show. It's it's really good. It just like absolutely blew my mind. Like I have to, I have to feel that like this is like really exceptional and going to make me feel something because I haven't felt something in about two years. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> that was that got really dark, really dark, fast. A little no, dark. but it has to be like a. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean to get so dark, but I can tell that it's something that's like you know really extraordinary because in all the streaming watching I've done, I've also watched a lot of mediocre stuff. <laughs> to be to be honest, what was the um, show? Uh, Severance. Which oh my you, god! You also, I mean, so good. there's also the like oh, recommendation for my brother it. and for my business partner and for my employees. You, you know, like it, <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> that's but, that's the first one that came to mind for me. Yeah. What I think is fascinating about that is that. By far, when you do like qualitative user studies, you ask people about what is the way that they find content. It is always the, like the recommendation from other friends or family. But what what I find so interesting is the way that like people describe why you might watch something and how can product, how can Peacock, Disney Plus, Netflix. I mean, Netflix does this, I think, to a better degree in sort of how they use language. But 
what are the comparables? You know, in real estate, you go, you go look at a house or you put your house on the market and people give you comparables. What are other people doing? Um, if, if I'm recommending a movie to someone, I might say it's, I compare it to something else that I, that I've watched or that they've watched and giving people those hooks and the, in the experience and using language in that way, which is what is the emotion you're going to feel? What are, what is this good for? I think that's a place we can really start to lean in. But again, it, it does all come down to metadata, whether it's metadata about the piece of content that's coming from the studio or an understanding of what the person, previous people got out of it. And so that's something that I'm really interested in figuring out ways how to get that into the experience because I think it is the natural way we talk about movies, but it is hard to get into an app. It is hard to source that data and have it make sense for someone in that moment. Do you feel like there are new ways that we're going to start to experience these kinds of services going forward because of how the the landscape has changed like we are all used to streaming services now we use them in a lot of different ways we were talking the other day and i remember you mentioning like are there analogies to like how people shop in the grocery store and discover new things and does that somehow sort of light up in the experience like i'm curious as to what you think is going to happen in the future as we sort of explore digital ways to represent some of these things that we're talking about. It all comes, I was just listening to a podcast this morning about choice architecture and and sort of how it was mostly about nudges and how to use nudges to get people to make the right decision for them. But, but even the physical stores and how people shop, anytime you go to a store, they are nudging you to do something. They are giving you some sort of mechanism to make your choice easier. So examples that I often use, if you go into a wine store, right, they have the little cards on the wine to tell you what is the spectator score, or here's the staff favorite picks. Or if you go into a bookstore, they have Oprah's book club or Reese's book club to help whittle that choice down. So you're not overwhelmed. You don't have analysis paralysis. You're not trying to choose from all of these things. And then you can't make a decision because I do think in streaming very, you know, widely accepted is sort of like this doom scroll where there are so many choices. You just cannot figure out what is the thing you should watch. And we're all trying to solve that. I don't think any streaming service has solved that. And so I do look to physical in-store experiences to figure out how are they making it easy to say yes? What is it that they're doing that get you to choose something? I think the comparables, right? You, you're going to watch Severance because it has the actor from Parks and Rec or, or you've watched previous things that he has been in or, or something like that. The other ones that I think are really compelling are if you think about Ikea or just even grocery stores, they very specifically make you walk through the store to get exposed to more things. So if you're in a grocery store, they put milk and they put eggs at the very far end of the store. You have to walk by everything to get them. They are staples. They are things that everyone needs to basically purchase. And it's purposeful, right? They put things on the end that you need so that you weave your way through. You see all these great things. And as an impulse, you throw them into your cart. Or Ikea is even more very strong-handed in in their approach, like they don't let you go another way. They just put you on one path and you go through the whole store and you look at everything. And whether or not you're, you're buying that couch that you saw now, it's, you know, seated in your mind, maybe for a future, future journey. That's, I think, a struggle for streaming services because, you know, you, we're sort of letting you into the storefront, but how do we get you to all the other stuff, right? There's only so much we can show on one screen or two screens. How do we get you into those aisles and down those those aisles to find other content. 
And so it is probably the premier struggle of streaming services today <laughs> because it, there is an overwhelming amount of content, right? Like Gina, even though you've watched a ton of content, you wa- haven't watched all of the content. Like there's a lot of right. content still there. <laughs> There, there is. I mean, I mean, you're kind of you're flipping through a grid of like definitely compelling and interesting, you know, a show art and movie art. But after a while, it's a grid of of, of pictures. I, I watch my nine year old daughter, you know, page through her favorite, you know, streaming services for all the, you know, the big ones, Disney Plus and and Netflix, etc. And like the truth is, though, the discovery algorithms have gotten really good. I mean, she's just like, oh right, the the thing with the puppies, and is it cake? And then all the other cake shows, and then the, you know, there's, uh, you know, next, oh another sparkly unicorn show okay cool like I, but like it, it serves it to her i think there's i think there's more some is better than others i mean for sure <laughs> yeah. yeah she has a different i won't say lower but a different bar than i do um so it's got it's gotten better but yeah i see that it is a challenge because i i will also catch her in just the, the the doom scrolls or just going through the grid just like going oh it keeps going like it just keeps going that you just keep going down yeah. and there's more <laughs> rows of pictures kate i'm really curious to know like, so in your switch from television and how, you know, that second screen experience and like sentiment on social and how people are engaging with shows to streaming, I, I don't know, there's some part of me that thinks that all the, you know, that the big streaming services probably know more about the collective emotion of humanity than like, than, 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 you <laughs> <Yeah>. know, <laughs> social media or television. Like, I'm curious to, to know if, if the kind of, information that you have about the engagement, the number of hours that people have spent watching certain things and that, you know, that cross of metadata, you know, what is this about and what are people most interested in? Like, do you feel like, you know, on the streaming side, you understand, you know, how people are engaging with content more, less or differently than in your previous role when it was like television and and coupled with social? I would have to acknowledge that when I'm at ESPN, I'm in a much junior, younger time in my career. And so I don't want to say that no one had that type of data, right? Because I think they spent a lot of money and resources to go and understand the consumers and what they like to watch and did focus groups and all of those things. I doesn't necessarily see those. But I do think there is more of an ongoing, consistent feedback loop now with streaming and having that data and having the being able to say, actually, how many people are watching this thing? How many people are coming back? What are the themes of it? Do we need to create a content pipeline to support that, right? You're talking about the unicorns and 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 the cake shows. I think sometimes you can over-index on that, right? Which is like, we should only create unicorn shows from now on. But I do think that there is, there is value in, in trying to understand what it is about those shows and those moments that's resonating for people, and then feeding that back into your content creation pipeline and those sorts of things. There was not as much of a attention paid, you know, in sports media in the sort of late 2010 or the 2010 range, you had a producer, you were creating a, a TV show that you thought sports fans wanted to watch. And whether or not sports fans really wanted to watch it didn't necessarily come into play all that much, at least at the levels that I think that I was operating at and that producing was having. Certainly the business was concerned, but there wasn't as much of a, what was the immediate reaction? What did people say? What are people responding to? And I think even now linear television has gotten there because of Twitter, because of all of these forums that allow people to react and then consume those. So it's shifted over time. I think there is definitely a much closer attention to how people respond. And then there's a wealth of data to react to. And the challenge is reacting to it in the right way and strategically so that you're not only creating one type of content because at this point in time, you're only seeing that one type of content perform well. 
How much do you think about different form factors when you're thinking about the end user experience? Like, are you focused on the TV and the app that's running on my Samsung or on my Apple TV box? Or are you also thinking about what is it like when someone's watching it on their iPad or, you know, they're on their phone while they're watching TV? And like, what is that experience? Like, are you are you thinking about it? And I say you, but I mean, in general, do you feel like the approach here is as an ecosystem or is it like we're focused on the TV and then everything else is ancillary? I think it has to be about the ecosystem. I think there are devices that you have data for that show that they're, you know, the one that maybe people are more often consuming from the TV device on their couches, certainly in the last, you know, three or four years because of the pandemic, that has been the case, right? Most, most of the streaming consumption is happening on TV devices, but I think you have to understand the value that those other devices can bring because the behaviors are often very different. And so there's an opportunity from a product perspective. You're not building just one experience on TV and then copying it onto your web or your your mobile device. Like there are aspects of those that you should be able to leverage to make the overall you know, in my case, Peacock experience better. So what can you do on mobile that is different? Or what do people do, right? You browse more, you look at what's coming next, and maybe you don't watch it on your device, but you save it to your my stuff or to your list. And so there's there's leaning into those device-specific behaviors that I think unlock a different experience that ultimately, if you're doing product right, benefits the whole. You know, from a resourcing perspective, I think then you have the challenge of, do you devote your resources to the thing where most people are or to devices where less people are, but there is a different type of behavior that could benefit the other? That's a challenge. But certainly they should not be carbon copies of each other at all. Very well said. I feel like also the customer acquisition story on those two or those several channels is different, right? If I am sitting down at my TV and I'm downloading the Apple TV Peacock app, I've already made a decision, right? That I want to watch Yellowstone and I'm going to go get this on my big screen. On a phone or on the web, it may be very different. I may have gotten a link from somebody or I may Mm -hmm. have, it may have been featured somewhere. And the way that people are coming in the front door is different and should be thought of differently. Like your onboarding experience might be different. Your, you know, your user account activation might be different. So those are all very interesting considerations as I think about as a user, like what is it like when I go into a streaming service for the first time? Yeah. I mean, a a great example of that is if you've tried to change your password on a TV device recently, that's an awful experience. You have to type in every, every single letter. So streamers now do, you know, scan the QR code and put it on, on your device, on your, on your mobile phone. Cause let's be honest, none of us are sitting on a couch without our mobile phones next to us. So there are ways that they've, you know, said like, this is awful for everyone. Let's use this other device to make that TV experience of watching that much better. I have to imagine that there's a way to have a a second screen experience that is that adds something even when you're I mean there are obvious examples right like sports where you've got clear extra stuff that you could show on a second screen but even for like watching shows I mean every show we watch I feel like you know there's a scene where somebody comes on screen and you're like wait I think Who I know that, that person yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you, if you both have have used this, but on on Amazon Prime, you know what I'm talking yeah, about. When yeah. you pause it, I think it's called X-ray, the yeah. feature, and it shows like who's in this scene and what music is playing. Such a good and idea. It's it's IMD such a good facts. idea. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. And I feel like that that is just the tip of the iceberg. Like I think this is going to be a component of of how we consume media in the future because you're totally right, Kate. Everyone's sitting there with their phones anyway. So yeah. how this starts to be like a more holistic experience. 
it's going to be interesting. Maybe we're all going to be wearing AR glasses at some point in the future, <laughs> but let's not let's not get there. It's fascinating because there's often right this idea of how hard is it to build a new habit versus you know there's already a habit that exists right and so i think the habit that exists at least you know if i'm thinking about it is you're going to imdb or you're going to wikipedia and you're looking up that person and so in this way amazon has sort of co-opted that experience of like going and looking it up yourself to just putting it on the screen in front of you and therefore you're not going and picking up your phone and therefore you're not necessarily getting distracted and stopping watching i mean you've stopped it because you paused it but maybe there is a value to them that your eyeballs are still on the screen you're not looking at your phone now but you know i've often I'm not someone who makes decisions about platforms to be acquired, but I've often thought that it would make a lot of sense for a streamer to have a platform or to own within a portfolio of a company, a platform where conversation or searches are happening about the thing that you are watching. So Twitter, right? Like if a media company, if Disney, who was rumored to have wanted to buy Twitter a while back, but didn't for some obvious reasons, but I think that would be incredibly valuable right now because you would understand what people were doing and talking about in the space of media in a real, in, in a way where you had access to, to data that you don't otherwise have, or even to, don't know that you could own a Wikipedia, but that sort of thing, which is there are these, these natural conversations, these natural offshoots, that if they were actually to live inside of a streamer and to provide that data could really like finally complete a, a sort of engagement puzzle or a, a flywheel to, to understanding what is my content generating? What's the action that comes next and how do I take advantage of it? Before we wrap up, I want I want to ask you a question. Is there anything about streaming or building product and streaming or, or in behind the scenes in the streaming industry that, that people don't know, but that they should know or might be surprised to know? I don't think it's necessarily something that's unique to streaming as much as it's something that's just unique to product, which, right, is that the obvious thing, the thing that you want your app, your your product to do that seems like a no-brainer is, is never a no-brainer and is always something that requires <laughs> trade-offs and priority realignment and, and all of these things. And so I, I think as the person who used to be the one sending ideas to PMs and not understanding what it meant, as a consumer of anything, right? Like, put yourself in the shoes. There's always a, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to go and improve this experience, what are the other things that are not getting done? And so I, I think as a PM seeing all of the tweets or all of the, the Reddit threads about things we want to improve on these experiences, like, yes, we want to improve all of those things. And we know about all of those things. We just, we have a very large backlog and it's, it's working through and deciding what's the most important and trying to align that again to, to the business goals. Well, thank you so much, Kate. So uh, what I'm taking away from this conversation is you would like everybody listening to download Peacock and then send yes, their feedback mm-hmm. directly to you. I'm assuming <laughs> course, Twitter yep. DM you know, works well. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> this was great. We really appreciate it. Thank you for, for taking us through everything sort of behind the scenes on, on streaming. And if you're listening and you have a streaming service that you want help build it, I'm reaching here, Gina. <laughs> if, if you want a, a product team to help with... Reach out to Postlight. <laughs> I don't know. We, and then we'll call Kate. <laughs> and then we'll call Kate. How about if, if, um, if you need help with your content strategy and setting up uh, different uh, there we go. tag points in the media to make it best discoverable, let's call Postlight. <laughs> we can help with that. Reach out. Hello at Postlight.com. If you got feedback for us on this episode or anything, uh, we'd love to talk to you. We get a kick out of hearing about all different kinds of problems and industries and the like. And we'd love to chat. We would. Kate, where can, where can people find out more about you and, and what you're working on and find you? 
So really the, the best place is probably on Twitter. I'm just at K underscore Radway. That is probably my most, my most active platform. Excellent. Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was so great to have it's you. Thank you guys. All right. All right. Talk to you soon. Take care. All right. Bye guys.